is brighter when we understand the science behind it. Hey everyone. Hey. Hey team. Welcome back to the second episode of Getting Brighter, the podcast where we shed light on the science of health, wealth and society. We're here to break down some more research and provide you with some practical tools for positive change. Yeah. I'm Dr. Emily Hughes, a social psychologist. And I'm soon to be Dr. Marsha Remska, and my research is in health psychology. So getting into the second episode, how do we feel? I'm good. I'm good. How are you feeling? Yeah, excited about this one. I know you're the expert here, so Oof, keen to talk all about no it. <laughs> <laughs> Very true. So yeah. today we're talking all about choice architecture. We are. And to get us going, do you want to just set the scene? Tell us what it is? Yeah, absolutely. I'm probably going to kick off just by defining what we mean by choice architecture. It's a terminology that we don't use in everyday language, right? Absolutely so not. it's important to understand what we mean by this. Mm -hmm. So choice architecture is the design of the environment in which people make a decision. Okay. So every day people are presented with various options mm -hmm. of different choices they can make. And how these options are presented will often determine the choice you end up making. So you can make a better or more desirable choice mm -hmm. by setting the scene differently to achieve different outcomes. What I mean by better or more desirable, of course, being subjective, depending yeah. on who you ask. So that's what we generally mean by choice architecture. Okay. Um, a choice architect, which is a term that we might come back to at some point in the episode, is someone who frames information and designs the presentation of those choices. And so many of us are choice architects without even realising it. So if you have ever tucked away your partner's old jumper that you don't really <laughs> like and one that you want them to stop wearing right to the back of a chest of drawers and moved forward all the clothes that you do wish that they would reach for more often then you are a choice architect. And I'm sure we can all relate to that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, drop a subtle hint in there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so that all sounds very cool. But where did the idea come from? So the term choice architecture was coined by Richard Thaler, who in 2008, along with Cass Sunstein, published a very popular book called Nudge. Mm -hmm. um, and this book was looking at improving decisions about health, wealth and happiness. But the researchers drew inspiration also from a cognitive scientist and a design researcher, and his name was Donald Norman. And in 1990, he wrote the book, The Design of Everyday Things, which basically was a reminder that designers need to remember that humans are continuously confronted with a number of options every day. And so the products that we use every day need to be designed for ease of use, right? Yeah. Um, and so Thaler and Sunstein in their book kind of developed on this same idea and was designed to help choice architects design their environments to match how humans behave, essentially. That makes um, sense. Yeah, exactly. It's quite a straightforward principle when mm -hmm. you think of it. And choice architecture has been super impactful um, in so many areas of policymaking and mm -hmm. design. So Sunstein himself was appointed to lead the White House's Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs. And we've also seen teams such as the Behavioural Insights team coming up under the UK Cabinet Office. Yeah. Also the Nudge Unit, who some of their research will come back and talk about later mm -hmm. in the episode, they are housed within the White House. 
and they work directly with agencies to diagnose, design, test and evaluate some of the interventions designed to investigate the mm-hmm. efficacy of choice architecture. So a lot of research is coming out of some of these policymaking departments as well. That's very interesting to kind of discuss and talk about. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, there is clearly something to it, you know, something mm. that has been implemented into policy to such an extent. Yeah. I definitely want to learn more about because it is probably already impacting our lives. Definitely, yeah. We might just not quite know it yet or not know what this might look like. Mm. So in practice, what would this look like? Are there any specific techniques that people, you know, scientists, policymakers use as choice architects? Yeah, so there are a lot of different techniques, but there are two main ones that people are using to change our environments. Mm -hmm. And these are defaults and nudges. So we'll mainly be speaking about defaults in this episode, but Mm -hmm. we'll also refer to some research on nudging. So while many will use these terms interchangeably, I think it's perhaps worth us understanding the difference between these two terms. Love a good definition. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. So a default very intuitively involves setting a default option. So this choice is one that a chooser would receive if they did nothing else. So to avoid that choice, you have to take active steps. An example of this would be an opt-out system. So think about your email subscriptions, all those emails you're automatically receiving in your Mm -hmm. inbox. You have to actively make a choice to unsubscribe to those. That would be an example of an opt-out system. Again, that's a term we'll use throughout this episode. Mm -hmm. So worth remembering. In contrast, a nudge is an aspect of choice architecture that will alter someone's behavior in a predictable way. And nudges can take various forms. So they could be things like making information really available to you. They could be things like setting reminders. So maybe you might receive a text, for example, to book your next appointment Mm -hmm. for something that would be a nudge. They could also involve changing the format or the presentation of information. So Mm -hmm. you might receive a letter where key information has been moved to the top of a page. Yeah. That is also a nudge. Very effective. Um, Exactly. And finally, it could also be perhaps emphasising how others like you are behaving. And this would be something like a social norm. That's how we'd refer to it in the literature. And all of those are different types of nudges. Okay. The one about making key information the most like readily available, I regularly do in my emails. I'll just put stuff in bold and I'm like, this is what I need you to pay attention to. Exactly. It's all about drawing attention to that most important information so that no one misses it. But the primary difference between a default and a nudge really is the effort required to make that choice. Mm -hmm. So defaults make it really difficult and really effortful to choose anything other than that desired outcome. Mm -hmm. Whereas with a nudge, the desired outcome is, you know, encouraged or made more appealing, but it's still pretty easy to avoid if you wanted to. So that's just something to keep in mind. Okay. Yeah. Making sense so far. Mm -hmm. And I think the idea of the default is so powerful. I think we don't necessarily even realise. So we've got, you know, a lay of the land now. We know what we're talking about, but we're all about the science here. So let's dig into that science some more. In the scientific literature, different types of nudges that we've just covered have been all studied. Setting defaults or changing the defaults has been studied the most we found. And in particular, studies have mostly looked at the domain of health, with the vast majority of research actually being targeted at eating or drinking related behaviour. So that would be things like changing diets to be healthier, 
And with drinking-related behaviour, it's mostly trying to reduce people's alcohol intake. Yeah. But of course, we've also got research from a number of other fields. So others include sustainability, things like buying and shopping habits, pro-social behaviour, which can be things like how much we help other people and in what circumstances, personal finance. So really nudging and choice architecture are relevant across the board. Yeah, absolutely. And I think one of the first areas where I was made aware of choice architecture or mm-hmm. what that would even mean is perhaps in relation to organ donation. I think that's yeah. quite a common one that people are aware yeah. of. And so I think way back when it used to be a opt-in system. So to register as a donor, you used to have to actively say that you wanted to donate okay, um, and yeah. indicate that on a form, for mm-hmm. example. And I know that some countries now are shifting to more of a opt-out system. So where you still have all of the choice to say what you want to do, but you have to make an active choice to not be a donor now. Um, And so that's quite a a big shift and one that I think perhaps people are more aware of. And one study that's really interesting comes from the Netherlands, and they basically looked at this comparison between opt-in and Mm opt-out systems in terms of their efficacy for donation. And what you see is that where you have an opt-out system, people are more likely to donate. So the donation rate here is 62% compared to an opt-in system where you have a 50% donation rate. So still pretty high in the Netherlands, which is really good. But that's a statistical difference there. So it is, you know, increased when Mm -hmm. you have an opt-out system. Really interestingly, in this study, they also looked at a condition of mandated choice, which is where you had no default, but citizens were actively encouraged to make a choice and that choice was mandated. So, you know, they had to say which of the two they wanted to do. And here you see that that is of equal efficacy to having an opt-out system, which I think is interesting. And we could perhaps talk about that a little bit later, but interesting to see that that equalizes to the opt-out. Okay. So then setting the default Mm. to you donate your organs had the same number of people be organ donors as when people were just made to decide yes but not prompted either direction no okay with you yeah interesting right yeah and another area where we see choice architecture being researched is also financial behavior Um, and looking at things like saving plans for retirement so Thaler himself and a behavioral economist Ben Artsy designed the save more tomorrow plan and that was designed in 2004 and this plan automatically enrolls employees in a savings plan when they become eligible and what they saw when they researched the efficacy of this plan was that 78% of those offered the plan joined the plan so that's Mm -hmm. good from the outset you know people are engaged and 80% remained through to their fourth pay rise within the company and the average saving rate increased from 3.5% to Mm -hmm. 13.6% over 40 months so that's a real increase in saving behavior as a result of that plan and because of this the plan has since made its way into policy so it's since been enforced as part of the US Pension Protection Act in 2006 which I think is a really good example of you know companies now beginning to adopt these core mm-hmm. principles mm-hmm. because of how you know how much research is out there showing how effective Absolutely. it can be yeah we love to see a nice progression from yeah. the research into policy and practice exactly. that is ultimately what research is there for yeah so that's great I think another area where we've been seeing nudges making their way into practice is the area of sustainability and renewable energy mm. so lately a number of energy suppliers have actually set the green energy or sustainable um, energy tariff as their default. Mm. And in one study from Germany, they set the green tariff as the default with an opt-out system so that people Mm. still had the choice to change to a different tariff, but 
if they didn't make any changes to their plan, they were on a green sustainable energy plan. Yeah. And even though this green energy tariff was a bit more expensive, they still found that there was a tenfold increase in the proportion of their users that had the sustainable energy. That's massive, isn't so it? So that's really, really impactful real world change that did not take away anyone's choice. It mm. simply meant that if you did nothing, you got a better option yeah. of the service they provide. And actually, we have got equivalent data or survey data from other countries, including the US and the UK, that finds a similar trend in that where you set the default to be a sustainable option, mm. it increases the uptake of that option by a big, big percentage. So in this case, by nearly half, by 45%. Yeah, that's a lot. And that just shows it's not really a one-off study that's finding exactly. this trend. It's, you know, across the board, we're yeah. seeing similar effects, even if mm -hmm. of different magnitude, you know, the effect is still there. And I think that shows how, you know, significant that is. Absolutely. It really does demonstrate the power of the default. Mm. I think we're coming to this idea time and time again, and it is really strong. So we've got a good overview of some of the science now. And let's move on to Debatable, which is where yes. we address some of the open questions and points of contention. We like a bit of debate. We do. So the whole thing about nudging and choice architecture is that it got very big, very popular, very quickly, mm -hmm. about 10 to 15 years ago. But there has since been some controversy as well, hasn't it? Yeah, there's definitely been some controversy in the literature and, you know, within the academic community more generally. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of this contention really boils down to this issue of effect sizes. Okay. And effect sizes are something we spoke about briefly in the last episode. Yeah. And essentially what we mean by an effect size in an academic research study is the meaningfulness of that effect, right? Okay. Yeah. So often we think about research in terms of statistical significance. So is that effect significant or not? Mm -hmm. um, and something could be significant, but not have a very large effect size. So the result could be positive and it could show, you know, something is happening there. Mm -hmm. But, you know, how big is that effect? How meaningful in the real world is that effect? Yeah. And that is what we mean by effect size. And so in this space, and there's a really interesting blog that we'll be linking in the show notes that mm -hmm. really discusses this issue in detail. And if you're really interested in reading more about this debate, I'd recommend taking a look at. But the real issue in simple terms is that the effect sizes in this literature space have been overstated very simply and I think this point is emphasized perhaps by some of the research being conducted by the policy making teams that we spoke okay. about a little bit at the start of the episode mm -hmm. so we referred to the nudge unit who are housed within the White House mm -hmm. and so data has been published from 126 nudge unit trials okay. covering 23 million individuals million million wow yeah. So the dream data set. Yeah, it is. So a lot, a lot of data. And these studies have basically compared a sample of nudge trials in academic journals mm -hmm. to these trials being conducted within the nudge unit. Okay. Um, so the academic data we're talking about here is coming from meta-analyses. As we mentioned in our last episode, this is the gold standard mm -hmm. of academic research that is being compared against here. Mm -hmm. And so what you see from academic papers is that the average impact of a nudge is very large. And in the nudge unit samples, so this being the policy making teams, mm -hmm. the impact is still sizable and it's statistically significant. Mm -hmm. So we're seeing positive effects here, right? But the effect size is much smaller. Okay. Um, and that is where we see this real key difference here between what is being published within mm -hmm. academia 
and what is being published by some of these policy making teams. And okay. that's really where the debate is, you know, and it really emphasises that issue. Yeah, absolutely. I think the important thing here is that the trend is the same, right? Yeah. But the picture might still not be quite the same that we see from it. So this kind of debate highlights that nuance that we need to have whenever we talk about science. Yeah. So another dilemma that came to mind for me was similar to what we discussed last week with exercise. Essentially, the ethics of choice architecture. Is it morally wrong for policymakers to nudge people to make better choices? What even are those better choices and who sets that standard? Exactly. And essentially, do they undermine human agency? And when, if ever, does a nudge become a shove? Yeah, I think this is a really big issue. And I think perhaps most pertinent because these techniques, particularly default setting, mm -hmm. can often be used without our awareness, you yeah. know? So choice architecture can sometimes actually be perceived as choice manipulation in yeah. a sense because okay. people aren't aware and it can feel like your autonomy, as you say, is being mm -hmm. undermined. And some really interesting research has come out around kind of public opinion and acceptability okay. of these techniques, which I think is super interesting. So a study of Swedish and American individuals showed that people indicate moderate support for using opt-out procedures. So this okay. idea of having an opt-out default. But the same piece of research also showed that people tend to find these opt-out policies intrusive and, you know, restrictive around individual freedom. So in short, People support and see benefit mm -hmm. to default setting, yeah. but they don't like it. Okay. Which I think is interesting. Yeah, but equally, it makes complete sense. Mm, I think it does. I might agree with the concept of organ donation, for example. And when I sit down to think about it, of course, I come down on the side of, yes, I want to donate my organs. Should I ever be in that position? Mm. But equally, people generally just don't like being told what to do. So if you then go on to ask, do you like being essentially manipulated slightly, even though you still have that choice yeah. that, you know, you might answer no to that. So I, I can see that paradox. Yeah, exactly. But on the bright side, I think it's also quite interesting to know that there has been research published looking at kind of how we can increase the mm -hmm. acceptability of these interventions, okay. because if they are to be used, we don't really want people to feel like that, do we? Yeah, exactly. We want them to be, you know, perceived as, you know, beneficial, but also people not to feel that there is restrictions around yeah. their freedom. Yeah. And so what we know from the research is that when people are informed more about when and why these behavioural interventions are mm -hmm. being used and are also informed about their efficacy, so okay. how beneficial they are, people are more likely to accept their use to mm -hmm. change their behavior and so I think that's a really good example of why science communication around choice architecture is really important because if we are you know giving this information to people saying mm -hmm. here's how beneficial they are mm -hmm. here's the situations they can be used in be aware of that mm -hmm. then perhaps people are more likely to have positive opinions of them which I think is really interesting exactly especially if they lead to better outcomes in the long run Mm -hmm, exactly. Research also really interestingly finds that context is important in this debate. So thinking about the types of areas in which choice architecture is used, people are widely accepting of the use of nudges in health and well-being contexts. Mm -hmm. However, they tend to think that nudges perhaps shouldn't be used in financial contexts, which I think is an interesting distinction. Mm -hmm. And there's an article summarising this research, which I think is really interesting. And we'll link again in the show notes so that people can have a read of that. 
But just one quote from this article, just to think about why this might be. So Mm -hmm. why people prefer choice architecture in health related domains as opposed to finance domains. Mm -hmm. The authors say we can only speculate around why people are more accepting of health related nudges. But one consideration could be that usually with health, there's a general agreement that certain things are unhealthy. Whereas for financial decisions, the right approach is often dependent on the person and their attitude to risk. Yeah, I mean, that makes complete sense, I think. In the health space, for example, we can all agree that smoking is unhealthy Mm. and would therefore welcome a nudge to help reduce smoking behaviour. But how much to save and in what way will very much depend on the person. So I, I think that makes sense, of course. Yeah. And then when thinking about how we might resolve this debate, I think earlier you mentioned the mandated choice Yes, in the Netherlands, that study, yeah. Exactly, where you are essentially made to make a choice, but not prompted in either direction. Yeah. It just essentially makes you think about what choice you're making. And that could be a happy medium. That could be a solution to people who might feel that setting defaults might be too intrusive. So mandated choices might actually keep a sense of autonomy because you are still making that decision but gets you to think about it. So you might make the decision that is more aligned with your values and goals. Exactly. And given the efficacy of mandated choice systems is kind of equivalent to Mm -hmm. the opt-out system. And perhaps in some contexts, some people may not be on board with an opt-out system, Mm -hmm. perhaps in in the context of organ donation, as that last piece of research on public opinion Mm -hmm. demonstrated, then yeah, using something like mandated choice could be a really nice kind of remedy to that. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Okay, then getting to the last section of today's episode, doable, where we offer some actionable steps based on the science that we just discussed. I think a lot of the science we looked at today was to do with policy and maybe Mm -hmm. accepting policy, but not that many actionable steps. So I was wondering, as individuals, how can we bring choice architecture into our lives and how can we set the scene around us in a way that allows us to make better choices. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's really important to kind of flip some of Mm -hmm. that research around and focus on how we can translate that back to the level of the individual. Yes. And so choice architecture, in short, is all about simplifying complex choice. This was one of Thaler and Sunstein's six key tools of choice architecture Mm -hmm. that they speak about in their very popular book, which I would absolutely recommend anyone going and reading if they are interested in this topic. Yes, this work did get Richard Thaler a Nobel Prize. So if there's ever a reason to read a book. Exactly. Make it this one. (laughs) Um, And I think the thing is that in today's society, we often are presented with too many choices. Mm -hmm. And the brain hates having too many choices. It overwhelms us. Exactly. And can lead to decision fatigue. So this is where we're faced with so many decisions that this can lead us to making worse decisions Mm -hmm. or even stopping making them at all, Mm -hmm. you know. And and often this can lead us to settle on a default choice that perhaps isn't even the best one for us. So the real key message here is to stick to simplifying your choices. One way to do this could be to reduce your number of options Mm -hmm. or categorize or chunk your options down into a meaningful way to you. Research finds that this option of kind of reducing your categories down gives the illusion of choice while still helping you feel satisfied with your choice. Because I think sometimes we can feel dissatisfied with the Mm -hmm. choice we've made simply because of the number of options we had presented there in the first place, right? Yeah. So let's simplify that, streamline and optimise it in that way. 
That makes me think of Steve Jobs, the founder of Apple. He yeah. famously only ever wore like one outfit. Exactly. And <laughs> as someone who stares into my wardrobe every day, I, I can see how much time and energy that would save. Yeah. <laughs> so he was onto something. Yeah, he definitely was. In fact, I think he was probably using the psychology of setting a default, which I think is one very good way of simplifying your choices. So linked to this last point, given that our brains will often take the path of least resistance, mm -hmm. which means that they will settle on a default choice that requires you to do nothing, particularly when we're so decision fatigued, you know, like we, we don't want to make any more decisions. Mm -hmm. We should try and make the default choice a good one mm -hmm. for that reason. So this could include something like making healthy snacks the default by purchasing more of these or perhaps only different varieties of mm -hmm. these. So you still have choice, but within a healthy domain. Yeah. And this kind of reminds me of when my mum is trying to be a little bit healthier and is like, well, if there's no chocolate in the house, then I can't eat it, right? <laughs> so if it's not there, then, then you can't make a bad default default choice. Yeah. And so I think this is one really easy thing we can do to mm -hmm. simplify our choices and make better ones. Yeah, for sure. A further technique we can use is to use location nudging. And that is essentially just fancy talk for saying that you use the location of objects as triggers or nudges for you to perform a behavior. So this could be things like placing snacks you want to eat. So healthy snacks at eye level where mm, you are most yeah. likely to choose them. Or another famous example is the kind of placing your trainers or your running shoes by the door with the idea of when you see those trainers you will be more likely to remember that you committed to doing that and then actually go for that run yeah and of course we need to caveat all of this by saying that these nudges will only take you to a point yeah so of course it, they won't be the be all and end all but by seeing the healthy snack there or by seeing the running shoes by the door you are more likely to actually go and do that behavior versus not having had that context engineered around you. Mm -hmm. And then another option we can talk about here is what we can do in our own lives is we know that humans get anchored to the first option we see. So research tells us that humans and the way our brains work is the first option we see, statistically speaking, we will be most likely to select it yeah. in a number of different contexts, or at least more likely than by chance. Mm. So now that we know that, might as well make sure that whatever choice we get anchored to, whatever we see first, whatever we come across first, is the choice that we want to make. Yeah, definitely. And I think in essence, these techniques are really empowering mm -hmm. in that they help you become the choice architect, you know, of your own life. And you can be the designer of your environment as opposed to the consumer of your environment. Think about it as something that you are doing as opposed to something that is done to you. And I think this is empowering in the fact that it will help you make the behaviours that you desire to perform as opposed to those that others want you to perform more likely, which really gives you that agency in your own life. And on that encouraging note, that's it for our second ever episode. Yes, thank you so much, everyone, for listening. If you're getting brighter from this podcast, then make sure to subscribe on Spotify, Apple Music or wherever you get your podcasts. Once you're there, we'd really appreciate you leaving us a review of anywhere up to five stars. If you have any feedback, questions or suggestions for future episodes, or you're just nosy and want to put faces to the names, you can find us on Twitter, threads and Instagram at GetBrighterPod. And if you're a bit more old school, we also check our emails at GetBrighterPod at gmail.com and we'd love to hear what you have to say or hear your takes on all of the social media platforms. We'd like to thank the Southwest Doctoral Training Partnership for supporting this podcast. And to finish off with our disclaimer. 
The Getting Brighter podcast is separate from our research and teaching roles at our respective universities. However, it is part of our shared passion for communicating science in an accessible and enjoyable way. Any advice given does not consider your unique individual circumstances, and we encourage you to seek professional guidance before making any significant lifestyle changes. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye. See you next week.